0: heavy on my heart. This has been one of the most difficult weeks uh, for our elders, um, for me, for their church. Um, There's so many things that I I don't want to get into, but there's just a few I do. Um, Some of the attacks that have come on the church is that we don't care about children. And I think there's so many things that have hurt so deeply this week. But one of them is we love our children. And we are extremely protective of them. We work very hard that the children down these hallways are safe. Who watches them? How many people are there? You can't believe how hard we work at that. I have spent a great deal of my life traveling, training pastors, been all over the world. There have been days where I've sat, where I've held babies of prostitutes that were these children were going to be sold into trafficking. I've I've played with children that have been rescued from those. I say with deepest conviction, we care about victims. And we work hard here to make sure that that doesn't happen. And, And we have confidence that we... We have and will continue to protect all that come into this building, young and old. We are working hard at even at this moment at the protection of you and these little ones. And so I beg you to pray with us that God would protect not only just our church, but those that are most vulnerable. We have a prayer sheet that's out in the foyer. I don't know if you've seen this, it's on how to pray and fight against human trafficking and it's just a great resource just to pray through i warned you during covid that the whole mask issue is important as that may be that that was going to cause more trafficking and it has this has always been a concern of ours and we hurt we hurt for the victims and so we beg you to pray with us as a church if the trials weren't enough this week, yesterday morning we received a phone call that Jim Butterworth died in his sleep. Found by his wife and daughter. I can't tell you how hard that was to hear for us, but how difficult it is for Shannon and Grace. We know the Lord doesn't pile on and we know He is sufficient, but us elders would tell you yesterday, it felt like it was one too many bricks. So we beg you to pray for Shannon and, and Grace and their two older daughters that have just flown in across the country to be here. He simply just didn't wake up. So it's with heavy hearts we Need to go to the Word. I don't know what else to do. I, I don't have much notes for you as you've seen. i I barely got the sermon done. But I think this passage will speak to us in many, many areas we need to hear as a church. We need we need the hand of God. We need healing. We need forgiveness. We we need restoration. We need all of that. And I think God's word will help us. Will you pray with me? Father, in great times of distress, times of us humans, this very frail people we are of not knowing and understanding what you are doing, we find ourselves with heavy and even broken hearts. And Father, even when we have striven to do what we can And yet sins still enter in, Lord, we find ourselves just overwhelmed. And so, Lord, we come to you now pleading with our sovereign God, our mighty Savior, sitting at the right hand of the Father to restore us, to strengthen us, to rebuke us, to heal us. We need all of that, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask as we turn to your word now that it would be sufficient for us. It would cause us, Lord, to know you and walk with you and turn from sin and see the glory of our Savior. It would strengthen the hurting. And it would reprove the sinner. So, Lord, we probably all fall into that category. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you look at with me, we look to the scriptures with me in Colossians chapter 3, 1, 1 through 3 to start with? This will be our text this morning. The Bible says this therefore you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, the Apostle Paul begins this section with a focus on practical Christian living. But practical Christian living is not attained without foundational truths. If you try to go out and try to live religiously without foundational truths, the finished work of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will fail you will fail. And if you believe that Jesus Jesus was truly raised from the dead, then your identity is not in who you are, who people think you are. Your identity, your immersion is in Christ. Not this world, not this church, but in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has made great strides to help us understand that. If you look just back at chapter 2, verse 9, he wants to tell us of, of our position. He says, For in him, that's Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is God. He is none other than God. He dressed himself in humanity so he could die for us, but he is in the fullness of God. Everything God is, he is. But look at the next verse, verse 10. In him, that's Jesus. You, the believer have been made complete. The word complete means lacking nothing. Everything we have, everything we need is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. And he is head over all rule and authority. He isn't a a second-hand God. He isn't um, down the line in the chain of power. All rule and authority belongs to our Savior. Notice verse 11. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That means He cleansed us. He cut away disease and deadness. All that stuff that would drag us to hell. All that stuff that is just the wickedness that we were born with. Christ in His perfect word work cut that away. And then verse 12, here's what we're after in this identification. Having been buried with him in baptism. This is not talking about water baptism that we'll see next Sunday night. This is talking about identification. You could read it this way. Having been buried with him in immersion. You've been immersed in Jesus Christ. He has taken you at salvation and planted you in his son. So when he looks at his son, he looks at you. He goes on to say, in which you were also raised up with him. We know that Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. And the picture Paul is painting here is when Christ died, we died. When he paid for our sins, we went to the grave with him in a sense. But he didn't stay in that grave. He was raised from the dead. And that raising from the dead was this proclamation that he can and did and will forgive our sins so he raised him, and notice this, through faith, we believe this. Now look at this little prepositional phrase in here, in the working of God. was God's work, not ours. Our salvation is apart from us. It's an alien to us. It's not something we gain. It's something that God has done in his working, who raised him from the dead to prove that we were in faith. Notice verse 13, it relates to our former position. When you were dead in your transgressions, and your uncircumcised flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of your transgressions. When we talk about our position with Christ, sitting at the right hand of the Father, this is why we sit there. Because he makes dead people, dead spiritual people, alive for eternity. And he does that. By breathing into you through the Spirit of God, regeneration, rebirth. And when he does that, he forgives all of your sins. You should circle that all in your Bible. We need to hear that, don't we? Sin is destructive. It's deadly, as we'll see today. We need to know that he forgives our sins. I love verse 14. It's so graphic having canceled out a certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Brothers and sisters, that's from your conception, from your birth. Everything you ever did is on that decree. Or ever will do. And he canceled it out. It was hostile to us, verse 14 says, and he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. See, this is why Christians have such confidence that our sins are forgiven. It's not because we did something. It's because he did something so spectacular, so eternal, so perfect and pure that we stand, no matter what we have done, in the glory of Christ. And brothers and sisters, when he allows something to take place or he chooses to take a dear brother like Jim home, he does it in his perfection. And we, humans who are but dust, must cling to him, must believe in him, that all he does is right. As we turn to chapter 3, you'll notice that there's a therefore that begins this passage. And there's a response in chapter 3 to the closing thoughts of chapter 2. In the closing thoughts of chapter 2, Paul is reminding that some ascetic or outward living has no real value to beat sin. Look at these verses, verse 21 to chapter 2, just before the chapter 3 begins. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and the teaching of men. There are matters which, uh, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom, in self-made religion, in self-abasement, in severe treatment of the body, now listen to this, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. What does he mean there? You want to act religious and have a religious relationship with God. Do right, say right, don't eat this, don't go there, do all that so you can stand in front of people and tell how religious you are. The Bible says you're never going to beat sin. It's going to cream you. It's going to take you to places you never dreamed. Paul wants us to turn our eyes to the Lord. He wants us to find the true remedy for sinful passion. He wants us as Christians, as is writing to the church, to realize that ascetic living or outward living will only bring you to more indulgence of, of the flesh. But there's a true remedy for sinful passions. And it's found in a believer's experience with the union with Jesus Christ. Who you are in Christ gives us victory to say no to sin. And the moment you take your eyes off that, you'll fall. The Bible says that we are, to, we are raised up with Christ and we are to seek, thinking the, of the, seeking the things above. I got thinking about that. I said, Lord, what were you like after your resurrection? Maybe we can learn from you a little bit if we think about what you did when you were resurrected. Well, when Christ was resurrected, he came out of the tomb where dead things are. It's the first thing I wrote in my notes. We left death. I think in Christianity, we play with death too much. Deadly things. We think we won't get caught. We think it's not as bad as the next person. Christ left the tomb. All of of our sins that caused his death, he left death behind. Have you left death behind? That tells you whether you're saved or not. Are you alive in Christ? Are you still dead in sin? It's one of the two. There's no in-between. There's no gray area there. You're either alive in Christ or you're dead in your sins. Christ got out of that tomb. Christ, after Christ's resurrection, he spent his remaining time with his disciples. Just for my own comfort, I read Acts chapter 1 and 2 this week. And In the beginning of chapter 1, verse 2, it says, until the day he was taken up into heaven, because remember, that's where he's going, heaven, and the Bible's going to tell us to keep our eyes on heaven. So until he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles of whom he had chosen To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and this and this, he continually spoke to them things concerning the kingdom of God. See, that's what happens to people who have been raised with Christ. We speak of his kingdom. Not Satan's kingdom, not the world's kingdom. We speak of his kingdom. And here's how gracious he is. He takes blood-bought sinners like us and takes us home one by one. He did that yesterday. And he's coming for more. And then one day he's going to gather the rest of us collectively and bring us to him because that's what the resurrected Savior does. But until then, we are to keep looking on things above. We are to be like Jesus Christ. In this passage, it was clear he was committed to discipleship. He's committed to being with one another. He's committed to serving one another. See, people who have been raised up from Christ want to be with other people who are raised up with Christ. They desire to be with them. They want to be discipled and disciple someone else. This is why your church talks this way about soul care and loving each other and helping each other grow in Christ. Because this is what our resurrected Lord does. And so when we've been raised up with Christ, these are some of the virtues. Another thing I thought of as I looked at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he lived in supernatural power. You know, well, Scott, I, I'm not supernatural. No, but the one who lives within you is. The Bible says he did many things, uh, many convincing proofs, people raised from the dead. I, it was amazing what God, our Lord, did even after his resurrection. But you and I have a supernatural power living within us. Just go left to Ephesians chapter 3 in your Bible. I was reminded of this because we just taught on this passage just a, a few weeks ago. Look at verse 16 with me. He starts his prayer in verse 14. He bows his knee. You remember this? Every family in heaven comes derives its name from our Father. And then he says this, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, listen to this, to be strengthened with power. With power. Through his spirit in the inner man. This is what God does. Our Lord has supernatural power. And he didn't leave us alone. He put his own spirit. The spirit of God is not some lesser God either. It's the spirit of God. And he puts that within us. We have the power to say no to sin. We have the power to live right in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. He empowers us to do that. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to give in to sin. He's empowered us. And another thing I realized after Christ's resurrection is he just kept looking up towards heaven. First person he runs into after his resurrection is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene wants to grab him. He says, don't cling to me. I have not ascended to heaven yet to my father. (laughs) He's constantly talking about being there. John chapter 4, 14, verse 3. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you also will be. He's always thinking about heaven. The night before his death, his prayer, Lord, return to me the glory that we shared from the foundations of the world. He longs to be in the presence of his Father. Isn't he our example? Shouldn't we long to be in the presence of God? Some ignorant person said this one time, one can be so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. That doesn't make any sense. I thought about that statement all week. Not if a believer has his or her desire set on Christ and looking to Christ in the heavens to be his or her motivation to live this life properly. This is what Paul's after. He wants us to know that our citizenship is not here. Turn with me just one book to the left, Philippians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, too many people fall in this life because their eyes are not on Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul reminds us of that in verse, chapter 3, verse 18. Notice he says, For many walk, of whom I have often told you, this is a problem, and now tell you even weepingly, that's how I feel today, that there are enemies of the cross of Christ. whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Notice the contrast. You want to find somebody who's not in Christ? They're consumed with this world. Are you? Where does the world hold you right now? Wednesday night I said, if the world walked in there and it was incarnate in a person and the world walked in and looked around the room who would he sit next to and call friend can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God but God doesn't intend this for us look at verse 20 and then I think of Jim our dear brother right now look he's experienced this verse 20 for our citizenship is in heaven he just walked into the presence of the Lord less than 24 hours ago, and and the Lord welcomed him in and says, here, I have a place prepared for you. Here is where you'll be with me forever. This is why we, we begin to work diligently by the strength of the Spirit to say no to sin, because we have a heavenly home waiting for us, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's the problem. We don't eagerly wait anymore. We're waiting for our pay raise. We're waiting for COVID to get over. We're waiting for all this other stuff. Do we eagerly wait for Jesus? He's coming back. Is your your lamp full of oil? Is the wick trimmed? Are you ready to go when he shows up? Or have you burned all that up on the things of the world that will perish? Notice verse 21. And our dear, sweet brother Jim has just experienced this who will transform the body of your humble estate. I'm telling you, this is a humble estate. If you think it ain't, get a little older. It's humble, isn't it? It's humbling what happens to us. It's humbling when you're with someone who's lived their life and their body is now just a frail, frail, skinny bag of bones and they breathe their last. That's what happens to us if we stay on this earth and and yet he says he takes his humble estate and he'll conform it to with his to his body and his glory and he'll do this by his power because he has everything subjected to him oh friends isn't jesus worth living for notice as you flip back to colossians we find this phrase seated at the right hand of god See, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to focus our attention on the sovereign rule of Christ and his power to exercise that rule right now. I want you to think presently, not, well, yeah, he's going to be king of kings, lord of lords, he's going to come back, and he's going to set the record straight. Yes, that is true, but I want you to think right now, right now, he has all power and authority. What have you asked him for? Things? Or have you asked him To make you a vessel that glorifies him. He has the power to do that. He has the power to change your thinking. And here Paul is commanding us. Have upward thinking. Have upward living. He's commanding us to meditate and dwell. And to live through the life of Christ. It's all based on the fact that he's beat death. He's enthroned as the Lord of the world. And he will not change administrations. He will not be removed. He will not have to bow to anybody else. He is the eternal ruler of the world, the universe, and all that has breath. And we bow our knee to him. And we find strength, brothers and sisters. Notice in the text, we are to seek and set our minds on things above. I think these verbs carry an idea of aspiration and desire and passion. And in order to seek things, the mind must be set, right? In other words, love heavenly things. Do you love heavenly things? Do you study about heaven? Do you let your heart drift away and think about the glories of a God who has made a heaven for us? Not too long ago, I spoke of J.I. Packard when he passed away, and I don't remember this quote. It, he said that he spent one hour a day thinking about heaven. What, is that? what goes through your head when I tell you that? That's impossible? Did you think one minute about heaven this week? See, the Bible is telling us for the believer we are to be deeply concerned about heavenly things. See, the lost have no concern, they're unconcerned with heaven. You know why? Because they're after heaven on earth, and it's going to fail them, and it's going to lead them right to judgment. But not the believer. All earthly things are not bad. Right? God has been so good. We see His beautiful creation. We looked at that last week in Psalms 104 and we marvel at the power and authority of our God and how beautiful He is. But listen, brothers and sisters, every good thing can become harmful if it's permitted to take the place of God. And that's where idolatry comes on in this passage. Christians are, to think affectionately, to terms to seek and said have a have an affectionate gratitude in them those those verbs and you chase them around in the scriptures you see there's this heavenly affectionate gratitude to the lord for what he has done for us what he's doing for us and what he will do for us and so work and problems and play and relationship all these things that occupy our mind are to now come and come to the lord who is seated at the right hand of the father with And listen, let me sum that part up. What I believe the Lord is doing, and He says, take all these things, take your troubled relationships, take your, your home, your family, your job, your finances, take all this stuff and take it to another dimension. See, we're dealing with this, and He wants you there with your marriage, with your finances with your jobs, with your sin issues that you're struggling with, go to a new dimension with them where Christ is seated. This is why sin doesn't get solved in our life because we go at this level. We stay here and we don't go there. And so sin repeats itself and we knock it down and we, we, we bash it with our own strength for a little while, but it just gets stronger and comes back and bites you. Because sin's goal is to what? Kill you. That's its goal. See, this is why Paul says in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is involved with all of your activities while you're here on this earth. And we must remind ourselves that everything we do, we're involved with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was your thought life this morning like? Christ was there. Where did you stumble and sin this week? Christ was there. Where did you honor him and glorify him in behavior and mind and attitude and thought? Christ was there. He's present with us and this is what the Apostle's trying to do is to get us to realize he is with us. All his wisdom, all his power, all of his knowledge is all available to us. Seek him. Seek him who is above. We keep seeking ourselves and we find ourselves in desperate trouble. We lack joy. We don't love people the way God asks us to love people because we do it on our own strength. I think in Christ, one of the things that Paul's trying to do is teach us that our will is awakened in Him. He says, set your mind, keep seeking, present continual tense, set your mind, keep seeking Christ who is above. See, before Christ, you're Your will was dead. There is no free will. It's a a farce. It's not biblical. Study your Bible. Depravity tells us that our wills were dead, shot. We have no willing our way to God. The only thing we had was a willful desire to sin. But in Christ, in Christ, we, we find a will now that can serve God. He now transforms a will that only thought about itself and was dead in its deeds. But now we have a will that can desire to to live for the Lord. Paul says over and over, live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. I'm, I'm praying that you'll live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Make the choice to live a life that's pleasing to Him. I think we decide how we live based on our knowledge of the word of God and the freedom the spirit has in our life. Did you hear that? I think we make a choice of how to, that we're going to obey the Lord through our knowledge of God. We know our Bibles and where we don't quench the spirit of God, where he's got freedom in our lives to convict us of sin and know the Almighty. We begin to live a life that's honoring to God. Isn't it interesting? Paul said in Philippians 1, 21, he said, for me to live is for me to live is Christ. So everything I do is Christ. (laughs) That's that's what he's after here. He's after the church to think about keeping my mind set on him. Lord, I accept what you have given me. Our dear sister Shannon. She's trying right now to accept what God has done. that's such a difficult, difficult hour. And that's what God wants from us. Lord, I don't understand why you've allowed this into my life, but I live for you regardless of your perfect choices. Look at verse 4 with me. In Christ, listen to this phrase, who is our life? I should mark that in your Bible. In Christ, who is our life? is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You ever hear people say, music is my life? Heard a lot of young men say, sports is my life. I've heard people say this about others, he lives for his work. That should never be said of a Christian. It's probably true of us at times, right? Right? But that's only something Jesus can do. See, there's a day coming, and you will see him in all of his reality and all who he is. Jim just stepped into that presence, and you'll wonder why you didn't live for him. I know I'll wonder that. I'll know, I'll look at him and go, oh, God, why didn't I give you that 70, 80, whatever it is for Jim, 63, small years in comparison to eternity, why didn't I live for you? See, he gives us the power to do that so we don't have to be our life about music or sports or work. Those are fine things that God gives us to do and to enjoy, but they cannot be our life. Christ, who is our life, deserves all of that. Look at verse 5 with me. Therefore, all of a sudden, Paul wants to deal with what he sees as why people don't look to the Lord. Why is not the church finding peace and comfort and why is sin not dying he 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 wants to examine this he wants us to see what happens why we hurt so bad why such difficult weeks fall upon us and so he says therefore in verse five if this is all true If Christ has been raised and you've been raised with Him and you're seeking the things above and and Christ is truly the very authority of God as He sits at the right hand and, and we continually set our minds on Him and not chasing this world's tail and we realize that we have died to our sin and our life is in Christ and He is our life and it will be revealed someday. Therefore, let's kill sin. Isn't that interesting? Notice he uses a verb here that literally means to make dead we get the word mortification from this mortify sin kill it or it'll kill you that's what he's warning us notice he he it suggests that it's not simply some you know simple suppression of sin or or control some evil acts or some attitudes I think this is the danger. This is where Christians fall into. This is where, I know speaking for men, this is where men will fall into. They'll try to keep something under control. They'll try to suppress it or hide it and, and, and go to church or, or, or serve in some way so somehow that this thing has, it can't get control of me and it can't kill me. Well, wow, what a mistake. Paul says, wipe it out exterminated. It's from the old life. It's not part of the new life. Kill it. Jesus, in his great sermon on the mount, said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better to enter the kingdom of God without a hand. And of course, our Lord is not talking about mutilation in some way. He's talking about the seriousness of sin. People back then, 2,000 years ago, just like today, people who follow God, who are religious, do not take sin seriously. And it comes on full attack. And it overruns you. See, we put to death, in a sense, by denying these things. We consider them dead to us and us dead to them. This is what Paul is after. Make sure they have no spiritual or life pulse in those things. What are you breathing life into that you should never breathe life into? What have you looked at? Thought about, contemplated. You're breathing life into something that's trying to kill you. That's foolish. And Paul warns us make sure these things are dead. See, the opposite is, is to gratify sensual appetite, to, to give it food and nourishment and keep it alive. But that's what men do. They, they, they want to just play with it here and keep it just alive, where if I want it, it's there. Ladies, I, I, I don't know you, I'm a guy but I bet just somewhere rings true with you too. What are you keeping alive that should be dead? This is what he's after. It's important to go through this list of godless, deadly, sinful things because our culture and even our flesh are trying to resuscitate them. So let's look what God wants us to kill here. Notice there are five areas and they're all around sexual um, uh, sinful sexual behavior, and, and look real quickly. God created the human race. He created a male and female, and it's clear—that's clear without a doubt. And God created man with the ability to experience intimacy, and 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 He created a, a relationship in marriage, in the confines of marriage, for enjoyment and procreation. It's a beautiful thing. But when man gets a hold of it and he abuses it, it carries tremendous consequences. Too many men have been in my office and said, well, it's just a sin like any other. I go, you watch this one come back and kick you to death. Yes, sin is sin. It cost our Savior's death. But sexual immorality carries such consequences. And it sweeps so wide as we're understanding more and more. It takes in and harms and destroys so far you can't even imagine. So he's warning us here. He gives us five areas. Paul says the first area to put to death is immorality. This is often referred to as fornication. It's sex outside of marriage. Writer of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 4, listen to the the depth of this verse. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Isn't that interesting? Among all what? What? Among all that God has given us to do on this earth, marriage is to be kept honored. He is extremely serious about that. And we know it's between a man and a woman. He's clear, Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 19, um, God in the garden, You you cannot mistake the clarity of what God says for marriage unless you just want to do things your own way. And then the Bible says this, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled That's a gift from God to you and your spouse. Not for your eyes or anyone else humanly or physically or or mentally. It's for you and your spouse. And then he says this comment, and most people don't see this because they they just say, oh, keep the marriage bed undefiled. But it says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge He'll judge this, and if you don't know Jesus Christ, he'll stand before him and he'll say, you're a fornicator, you're an adulteress, and he'll list your sins and he'll condemn you for hell. Or you'll stand before him and he'll say, all of your sins were forgiven by Jesus Christ. Enter in and enjoy my rest. Which one do you want? This immorality here in this text would include adultery that's outside of your marriage, It takes in a wide range, but the Bible says here it is to be put to death. There's no argument. This term means exactly what it means. You can't twist it, and the only way to beat it is look up. Look up to where your Savior is. Second area that needs to be put to death is impurity. This is a word we get for uncleanness. It refers to things perverted, everything from homosexuality to child abuse. This is a a, a massive word. These These are corrupted things. These are things that attack God's design for purity. They're repulsive to our God, and they should be repulsive to us. I don't know how many range of emotions I've been through this week. And you try to keep them in God's word because you, you know what sin does. You know the length of it. and You know its goal. You know what it's trying to do. He doesn't hide it from us. The wages of sin is death. That's the goal. It wants to kill churches. It wants to kill relationships. It wants to kill families. You know it. Stand with us, brothers and sisters, against impurities. Not in some legalistic, self-righteous way, but because Jesus is worth it it has to start with you and me. You and me first. In our own personal lives. And then loving one another to say, Hey, can I be accountable to you and you accountable to me? To have a church that loves God so much we hate impurity. He can do that. Look up, look up, look up. That's where our help comes from. Third area is this Greek word pathos. It's translated passion or lust or shameful desires, godless affections. This is where pornography clearly falls into this. It refers to erotic passions which are aroused by visual things. All this needs to die. It belongs to the old life. It's way outside the boundaries of God's design. And it becomes destructive to the point it brings death. He's writing this to the church, not to the world. Do we understand that, brothers and sisters? This is not something new. The church has been dealing with sinful tendencies that work their way into our churches and cause destruction. Oh, brothers and sisters, he's talking to us. Fourth area that needs to die is evil desires. It's closely associated with lust and involves the mental uncleanness. Jesus spoke about this. He said, when a man looks on another woman in lust in his heart, he, it is as though he's committed adultery. He said, well, I haven't done any of that. If it's here, it's wrong. You'll only beat it by looking up. Looking to our Lord and Savior confessing it as sin, repenting, turning from it by the strength of of a Savior so mighty, so powerful that He could forgive you of that and stand at the right hand, sit at the right hand of the Father with all power and all of authority. He can take you through it. But you have to look up. The fifth area, which is very interesting, is the word greed that needs to die. Greed or coveting. It's linked through the scriptures to idolatry just as it is in this passage. It needs to die because whether it's lust after money or lust after things money can buy, it will kill you. And I think in the context, when you think about the context that's laid here, this sexual immorality that Paul is after, I think greed is what he's talking about. It causes you to be greedy for somebody that doesn't belong to you. I think that's the context. It's warning of sexual sin. He's warning of meeting someone that you don't belong to, having affairs. I think he's warning us of a lack of contentment with what God has done in your life and who God has given to you. See, sin drives this person to idolize another person so much in the the end their greed will drive them to idolatry of that person. And you'll bow down to your idol. Men will give up half their income. They'll give up their cars. They'll give up jobs. They'll give up all kinds of things because their idol has become something that wasn't their wife. And vice versa. It'll kill you. It's an idol. Songs. Just listen to the world. They say, I can't live without you. You're my deepest desires. You're all I need. Our music of the world is all of that, right? It's all idolatry. Who who could be that except God? Who can be everything we need? Don't marry me. (laughs) I'm gonna miss that, right, babe? Thirty-three years, yesterday. We all fall short, brothers and sisters. if if our love isn't for the Lord Jesus Christ who's seated at the right hand, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Look at verse 6 with me. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Some of the manuscripts only say, some of our earliest ones say, on the count of these things, wrath of God is coming. It doesn't add that other phrase. And, And so let me ask you, what do you think of when you think of the wrath of God? What comes to mind? Many people think it's God getting really mad and vindictively striking down someone. Maybe they think that way. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scriptures declare something completely different. The wrath of God is His judicial reaction to evil. Did you get that? The wrath of God is His judicial reaction to evil. That means the perfect, almighty, holy, without sins, God's reaction to sin. That's what the wrath of God is. That's what he does. And this is what we see. It is the way a holy God reacts to a civilization or an individual who has turned their back on the moral absolutes that God has given. And they've ignored the moral truth that God has written on his heart. They get the wrath of God and that's Romans 1, isn't it? Although they knew there was a God... They turn their back and love the things he created and love the things he said no to and they love those things and God gives them over to those things. It's his judicial, holy wrath letting evil bring about their own destruction. The Bible says it right in that text. You can read it yourself. That's the wrath of God. If there's anything you should ever pray is Lord, never turn away from me. Don't let me go. Don't turn me loose. I'll never survive. I think the Lord in many cases removes the restraint within an individual or even a society. And evil just takes its way. It produces evil. And death comes from it. Sin just breaks everything from government to law enforcement to individuals to families. And and it has no respect of your personal life. People say, well, Scott, come on. You're old-fashioned here. You know, aren't we supposed to love everybody? Accept everybody. I was reading an old theologian. I think he's passed away by now. His name was Louis Smeed. He was dealing with people who were attacking and saying, well, the Bible has all these commands that we shouldn't even, we should ignore, like, you know, don't boil you know, a baby goat in its mother's milk. You know, and they bring stuff up like that. Well, we shouldn't do that. Why should we obey that God says uh, homosexuality is an abomination to him? And they try to make that argument. Here's his response. Listen to this. Some rules are obsolete. Excuse me. Some rules. I'm trying to read my own writing. Some rules are absolute. Sorry. They roll like moral thunder through the ages, down the hills like civilization, in every civilization, and into the valleys of every culture. They hold all people everywhere to account, all classes, all creeds, rich or poor, ancient or modern. They come with authority, claim to respect everywhere, under all circumstances, every nook and cranny, and under every individual private and public existence." I have been around the world and you can go into the jungles of the Philippines and if you take another man's wife it's wrong there. Just as wrong as it is in the biggest cities of the United States. God has wrote a moral fiber upon our hearts and we know it's evil. And yet man pushes against it. The Bible tells us, brothers and sisters, flee flee from youthful lust. How has it crept into your life? Sin of Christians greatly affects people. I, I, I want just Before I go to verse 7, I want you to understand, you cannot keep willfully sinning, and it's not going to affect the person sitting next to you or this church. I want you to understand that. Is Christ worthy to say, God, forgive me through Jesus Christ, Help me take that supernatural power that lives within me and say no to sin. That's what the Lord's after. Look at verse 7 with me. And in them you, once, you also once walked when you were living in them. See, unfortunately, too many Christians fall into these practices, and, and even it's hit our own church, the depth of evil immorality practices. These, these wicked practices are supposed to be in our past. That's what he's saying in verse 7. They're supposed to be in our past. Don't you love verses like Romans chapter 6, verse 14, where it says, sin is no longer your master. I, I remember circling that in one of my early Bibles and marking that up and praying that to God, saying, God, sin is no longer my master as a young man trying to find victory over sin. God, your sin you don't have control over me I'm not under law the verse goes on to say I'm under the grace of God and the grace of God is going to motivate me to live my life right for you Lord See, this is what Paul's after and now Paul is saying have you become a Christian that stuff's in the past stop sinning because you can stop sinning you don't have a master like, like sin you have a master like Christ look up to him look up See, the law condemns you. But now grace targets the inner attitude of your life and the Spirit engages the grace of God to effect a great, godly, pleasing conduct. That's what you're after. That's what I'm after. Look at verse 8 with me. But now you also put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Well, maybe there were some of you in here that by God's grace, feel like, okay, Lord, I, I, I think I'm okay. I, I, I'm going to still gonna watch those things in that first list, but, but I think I'm okay. And maybe there's some of you who that first list hit you hard. I hope, I hope there are, because we gotta, we got to surrender our sin. But there might be those who are in here, I got, I got safely through the first list. Well, here comes the second one. And if the first one didn't get you, probably the second one is, watch with me what happens here. Notice again, he exhorts to stop doing certain sinful things because we can stop. Notice a little phrase in verse 8. But, I mean, excuse me, put them aside. That's, that's a definitive statement. Put them aside. That means you can put them aside. And now he gives us a, a different list here. And, and this list appeals to our attitudes, Right? It's an appeal to God here for grace to help us with these, these sins that we, we maybe don't say are as bad as the first list, but these are, these are difficult things, and, and he's going to do the same thing. Look up. Look quickly with me. Paul begins this list of attitudes to renounce. first attitude to, to die to, to renounce to, that's of our old life, is anger. According to the Scriptures, there's nothing wrong with anger. I told you already that I feel like I've gone through every wave of emotions this week. And one of them is anger. The question is, does it go to sin? And here Paul is talking about putting to death a sinful anger. An outburst of evil, passionate anger. Long, extended periods of sinful anger. Anger that makes you not talk to somebody. Anger that wants somebody to disappear. Anger that is bittered. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about anger against sin. And I've seen too many people try to justify that. But their deeds don't prove it. Put this away. Put this away. This belongs to your old life. Second attitude is wrath. This is an evil, passionate rage. It's a quick temper tantrum that comes on. It's violent displays. It's attacking using words and deeds upon another person. And as Christians, we are not removed from this type of temptation, right? Somewhere along this list, something's going to hit you in this. But somewhere we have to say, oh God, I see this in my life. That's not part of my new life. That's not the new creation. That's the old life. But it's still hanging around. You can say no. If you look above, we're new creatures. Third attitude notice this one needs to die is malice. Malice can be silent. Malice is a hidden trait of the heart that seeks revenge in secret. Malice is nasty. It finds satisfaction in doing evil even if the person doesn't know it came from you. I've had people come to me after years and ask my forgiveness for this sin. If you've ever had somebody that has had malice to you, you feel hatred without them saying it. This is a deadly sin. It's sin right from the pit. Look at the fourth attitude. Another one that needs to be put off and to die is slander. Slander attacks another person's character, whispering things about him or her, whether they're true or untrue, that seek to destroy the reputation of that person in the eyes of others. Slander can be hidden in false motives. I've seen people try to say they're coming to get help for somebody else, but they slander all the way through. Their desires are not to help the person. Their desires is for the other person to know how bad that person is. See how well we can hide this? We can hide behind this cloak. This is written to the church. Fifth attitude that is destructive, sinfulness that needs to die is abusive speech. Cursing crude or coarse words, filthy and foul talk looks, and Christians struggle with these type of temptations. Pound your thumb with a hammer. <laughs> What's in the heart comes out. We've all been there, haven't we? This can be beat. This, this, this can be beat when we look above. This is all what Paul's talking. Set your mind, set your heart on things above. I think sometimes we think hypocrisy is when somebody comes in, a Christian comes in, who's been living a a wicked life, and they come in here, and they sit down, and they sing praises to God, they amen sermons, and we go, oh, that's hypocrisy. And to an extent, it is. But let me twist your thinking just a little bit from this passage. Here's what I think hypocrisy is. I think the Bible is trying to tell us here that we stand in perfect position with Jesus Christ. We have all his strength. We have all of his power. We live godly. We have the ability to live godly lives in this world. And so when evil or immorality comes along and we begin to live hypocritically, it is because we're not being true to our right nature. My true nature is I'm saved from the deadliness of sin for eternity. That's my true nature. And so we flip this around. We should should say, that's not me, Lord. Please forgive me. I am the one you came and died for. I'm the one you were buried for. I'm the one you were resurrected for. That's not me. Forgive me. Cause me to understand the depths of repentance and walk with you. Isn't that a good prayer? See, that's what I think Paul's after. We are saved. And when we do sinful things, we should feel like we're phony or hypocrites because we're not acting like our true selves. We're to be right with the Lord. The ninth attitude that needs to die is lying. Christians have experienced the saving grace of God and the love. And love is truth, right? Truth is set us free. So lying is so contrary, isn't it? Lying breeds suspicion. It destroys trust. We think, we think little white lies, right? We try to justify. I read another older man this week on this, and he said this, Perhaps all, secretly, all, all of us secretly agree with the little boy who was asked, What is a lie? And he replied by saying, A lie is an abomination to the Lord, but a very present help in the time of trouble. i think we believe that the problem is that little boy became a man and he's still doing it he's never dealing with truth fully so his wife doesn't trust him his children don't trust him the job doesn't trust him he doesn't move along because he has lost trust because he doesn't know truth and truth not in the church it lies within the church will destroy our unity We are built on truth. Truth set us free. Truth of Jesus Christ right on the cross is what we cling to, sing to, worship, remember all of that. We must put away lies. What if, what if you had lived this way so long that no one will believe you anymore? Might be in the room this way. We've got all this list, these six things uh, attitudes and then these five other sexual and moral things? What if you've lived so long no one will believe you anymore? Could that be true? I think it is. Well, what do you do, Scott? Stop talking. Start repenting and start living. Talk is cheap. It's time to love the Lord Jesus more than we talk about him at some sort set. We who, if you're walking with the Lord, you should be talking about Jesus. But there are too many people who never get anywhere, they never solve their issues because they keep talking and not living. And that's what Paul's saying look to your Savior, look and live, walk with Him. Look at verse 10, I've got to wind this up. 10, he says, and having put on a new self who is being renewed, continually renewed in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In this verse, we we could almost picture the person coming in, right? Taking off the old self like an old coat and he's become a new person in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he's a new person, a new creation. See, the new person in Christ is renewed daily in the knowledge of God. If you read your Bible and walk away and stay in sin, you didn't read your Bible. I don't know what you read, but you didn't read God's Word. God's Word penetrates the soul. And so here, here we are, and he's, he's given us the answer here. Renew yourself. You're a new person. You're a new creation. You're constantly being renewed with a knowledge of God's Word and the Spirit's help. Notice He says, according to the image of the one who created Him, well, he's alluding here to Genesis 1:27, where God said, let us make man in our image. But Adam, Adam fell. Adam drug us all into depravity. But there was a second Adam, Romans 5 says, and that's Jesus. And that's who we are now made in the image of. We have a new image in Jesus Christ, the resurrected, incarnate, perfect son of God. That's who we are. And brothers and sisters, that's why, that's why we feel safe. That's why we feel forgiven this is why we can be restored. It's because he's creating us into the image of the one who beats sin. And then finally, look at verse 11. A, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free man, but, in, but Christ is all and in all. Well, these verses certainly speak of our equality in Christ, but I believe there's, that's more the application of I think their verse like Galatians 3.28 is more along the line of equality in Christ. Um, there's neither Jew nor Greek or neither slave nor free. They're all ma- uh, whether male or female, you're all one in Christ. But here, in this particular context, putting to death Im- immoral sins and, and sinful attitudes, putting off the old man and putting on the new, I think these verses are warning us and telling us, not warning us, but telling us, look, it doesn't matter where you come from. You can be free. You, can't, you don't have to blame it on who you are. Let me give you an example. I'm a Portuguese and a Scot. There's some hot blood in there, isn't there? And I could say, well, Gina, I'm the way I am because my grandfather came over in a boat from Portugal and he was a fiery pork cheese And I'm just like him. What did I do? I blame shift. Or you can say, hey, I'm from New York. We speak the way we want. (laughs) Or you can say, You don't know my parents. You don't know what my dad did. What this verse is saying no matter what your background is, no matter what your parents were like, we all can be right equality in God. He overcomes our race, He overcomes our creed, He overcomes our backgrounds. And, and there's a point in counseling where you can say, yeah, I, we need to know some of that, some of the things that maybe happened to you, even abusive things. But there's a point where God, through Christ, is greater than that. And that's what that verse is about. And so you and I don't have to go back and fall back on our sin because we're a portuguese. We can say, God, you saved this portuguese. He didn't deserve your grace, he deserved your wrath. Help me live for you. Help me live a pleasing life to you. That's what he's after. That's what the Christian life is about. Look up. Look up. One final thought. So many things came at us this week. And I think sometimes people look at the Christian life and they say, you're just a bunch of dull people. You don't want to do this and you don't want to do that. You don't want to be involved with this and that. Let me tell you what a Christian life is. Listen to this phrase. The Bible says... That we are to walk by faith and not by sight. You want to try an adventure? Walk by faith and not by what you see. That is the most invigorating, scary, faith-increasing manner of life. The world walks by what they see, what they can get, what they can take, what they can get away with. We are told to walk by faith. And if you want to venture, say, God, teach me to walk by faith. Teach me to say yes when there's a need, when I don't know how I'm going to meet it, but but you're gonna you're gonna supply it, and I'm going to step out by faith and say, "Okay, we'll go." Okay, we'll pack up our RV and we'll move to Florida. We don't know what you're going to do there, God. We're scared to death. That there's an invigoration, a spiritual invigoration, when we go. Okay, God, what do you want us to do? Finally, be truthful. Be truthful. Truth leads to the mercy of God. I've said that so many times this week. I I can't tell you how many numbers. Truth leads to the mercy of God. And if you're struggling with any of this list, the, the sexual immorality of the first five or the attitudes of the second six, truth leads to the mercy of God. If you will not be truthful, you will not get his mercy. And you'll stay in your sin and you'll struggle and you'll struggle and you'll struggle. Be truthful. It'll bring the mercy of God. Amen? Father, we've had a hard week. We sorrow. We sorrow over our own sin. We sorrow over other sins. We sorrow for what the name of Christ has become in the community, the name of our church. We sorrow. We want you to be lifted up. We know what you've done for us. We want you to be glorified, exalted. So, Lord, we ask for your mercy. Protect our church, Lord, for those who seek evil towards it. Lord, please let us be a light. Don't take your light away from our house, Lord. We want you to shine here. We want people to be attracted to the gospel. Please bury our sin, Lord. Bury it. I pray for those in this room, from all of us, Lord, that we fall somewhere in these, in these five immoral sins or these five terrible sins of attitude, Lord, where we're, we're not killing them, Lord. We're just suppressing them. They're deadly, Lord, and they're gonna hurt us, and they're gonna hurt the church, and they're gonna hurt marriages. So, Lord, we beg you, please help us mortify sin. And help us keep our eyes on you, Lord. I pray for Shannon and her daughters. Help her keep her eyes on you. Help her, Lord, Give give her favor, Lord. Give her grace, calm her heart and her fears, Lord. Help us love those who are struggling. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a final benediction? It's very short. Listen to this prayer. Our Heavenly Father and our gracious Savior, cause us to look up and see the glory and the beauty of the unchanging one to behold the gospel afresh and let it pierce our hearts and create the change that you so desire. Break us, forgive us, heal us, and restore us by your grace. Amen.